I'm trying to keep the visual stuff a bit more sacred and still keep that childlike playfulness and joy that I had when I made that first one in Borneo. episode of Pine Copper Live, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I usually release an episode every two weeks, but now that we're all navigating through this new normal, you may have noticed that they've been coming out every week or so. I'm going to try and keep that up for as long as I can, so welcome back all. Glad you're here. This week's episode is another that I was able to record in person using sound equipment I purchased with the generous support of the PCL patrons over on Patreon. You all are amazing, and you literally keep the lights on over at our studio, which is just my bedroom. But thank you all so, so very much. I did also want to make sure to say, though, I know this is an incredibly scary and unstable time for many of us in the arts. So if you're finding yourself in a position where you can't be supporting PCL with the money right now, I get it. I've already had a couple of people have to pull out after being supporters from almost day one. And no hard feelings at all. We all have to look out for each other, but we need to be looking after ourselves as well. Put on your oxygen mask first, or maybe just your face mask these days, before assisting others. So, if you can help, awesome. If you can't, no worries. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. Join the party. My guest this week is Omar Musa, a Malaysian-Australian rapper, poet, published author, and self-taught printmaker from Queen Bien. Since discovering woodcuts in the last few years, Omar has been making some of the most heartfelt and honest prints, with some of the most masterful pairings of language and image I have ever seen. And also, very luckily for me, Omar is a bit of a famous. When we spoke, he was just coming off a tour with Kate Tempest, which means he's probably been interviewed more than any other guest I've had. So he speaks beautifully and engagingly about his process, and he has a great Australian accent. We talk about his discovery of woodcuts while on a writing retreat in Borneo, printmaking and activism, storytelling, quite a bit about the highs and lows of the creative process, and we even close with Omar performing one of his most recent poems. You're going to love it. So sit back, relax, and prepare to get pulled into the story with Omar Musa. Hey Omar, how's it going? Hey, I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining me. I am very excited to do another in-person interview, and with you. I'm just recovering a little bit from a cold, so hopefully I'm more Lauren Bacall than I am super nasally <laughs> in the interview, but it's you know worth pushing through because we've been trying to find a chance to sit down together for a while. I'm looking forward to it. This is my first ever interview about my visual art practice. I know. I'm super excited because I was thinking about this before. Like we said, you've probably been interviewed in general more than anyone who's been on the podcast before <laughs> because you've had this whole initial career in like spoken word and rap and poetry 
and kind of came to printmaking more recently. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, before we totally dive into things, I sort of try to get my guests to answer my three standard questions mm -hmm. to give a bit of background, which I call the who you are, where you are, what you do. Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> I am a uh, Malaysian-Australian scallywag, reprobate and troublemaker <laughs> who makes work in the field of the arts in general, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've... I've I'm more known for my poetry and my novel writing um, and also my hip-hop career, um, but I've never had a problem sort of bouncing in and out and in between genres and mediums. Mm -hmm. But most of them have been associated with writing. Um, and this recent foray into the visual arts has been really exciting for me and something completely unexpected, even though when I was young, when I was a kid, I loved painting and I loved drawing as well. Uh, where am I? <laughs> I'm in the nation's capital of Australia, Canberra, but I actually come from Queanbeyan, which is across the border in New South Wales, known as Struggle Town, <laughs> the 2620. I like to call it the Venice of the Eden Monero. Uh, <laughs> no one else calls it that. But um, yeah, I'm very, very proudly from Queanbeyan. It was a place that used to get you know, looked down upon a lot by, by Canberrans, which in turn is looked down upon by a lot of people in Australia. <laughs> so, you know, I think that shows you, you know, where, where I'm from. Uh, and what was the third question? Uh, so I think that you might have just answered them because it was who you are, where you are, what you do. What so, I do, yeah. What you do, so I think that's it. Yeah, those so are the things, yeah. but mostly words, you know. Yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, I've always conceived of my writing in a very visual sense. Mm. A lot of my poems and even my novel were based on kind of visions or even hallucinations, you could call them, that I've then tried to describe with words. So, oh, so really very, very visually and um, in, a, in a visceral way um, that I often hoped would replicate a painting or even uh, a movie, mm -hmm. sort of the cinema. And so I take my cues a lot from that. And um, you know, even when I'm writing, people ask me this age-old question of how do you deal with writer's block? Uh, and one of my answers is that in Australia, but in many countries, we're lucky enough to have public art galleries. Mm. And so oftentimes, if I'm at a bit of a loss for what to write about, I'll go to the National Portrait Gallery or the National Gallery of Australia and just have a wander around. And I always mm. find that the visual uh, will pique my interest and inflame my imagination in a way that gets me working again. Yeah, because you grew up, you were saying you grew up in Queen Bien, which is yep. just down the road from these galleries. Yeah. Was going to them something that you did as a child? Was visual arts a big part? Because you said you loved to draw, but was it something kind of beyond that that took up a lot of time and cultural space in the house that you grew up in? Yeah, definitely, mm -hmm. it did. Uh, my grandma was a painter, an avid painter, so even up until, you know, uh, she got put in a nursing home in, when she was sort of 90, she was still working with acrylics and, and painting, usually kind of landscapes or, or country scenes, things like that. But I remember when I was young, um, she would really encourage me and, and for, as presents for Christmas and stuff, she'd give me pencils to sketch with and, and also um, pastels mm. and, and sort of help me in that way. And so that was, drawing was my first love even before writing poetry and everything. And then also I come from a fairly artistically focused family. My mum was the arts editor of the Canberra Times, the major newspaper here. 
and before that ran Muse Arts Magazine, which was an independent arts magazine here in Canberra. Uh, and so I was really lucky and had a really privileged upbringing in that I would go to exhibition openings all the time. We would go to galleries and to these major institutions when I was a kid, as well as um, the theatre and, and concerts and things like that. And so uh, in a weird way, I think through osmosis, I kind of took in a whole bunch of artistic influences even though you know now I'm in my mid-30s and I feel like oh I'm not, I sometimes feel a bit out of my depth in mm. these spaces um, and I'm, I'm not formally trained or, or anything like that but I think that was a form of training you know oh, firstly a love of the arts and having a mother and a father who are true believers in the function of the arts in society that um, that the arts constitutes civilization basically mm. or, or, or not necessarily civilization but humanity mm. you know like in a world that often focuses on economics or monetary things a society that doesn't value the arts is in a way of no value um, mm. you know what I mean and uh, and so that was I guess a form of early training in just the way that I saw the world absolutely at what point would you say that the words start to take over and become your sort of major focus and, and the visual arts, at least for that time being, sort of fall to the wayside a little bit for I you. I know exactly when that happened. Um, I don't know what it's like in the States, but here when you go into the final years of high school, you have to choose certain subjects and certain subjects clash with one another in terms of when, you know, when the periods are in the mm -hmm. school day. And so I had previously been doing drama or theatre, which was also a love of mine in high school, and it was on the same at the same time as visual art okay. when you chose to do the final two years of school. And so I would have preferred to do both, but I chose drama just because I think, you know, to be honest, I was probably a little bit better at it, but also it had much more of a, it seemed to me, a collaborative and social side. Mm. Um, you know, you, you're doing it with a bunch of your mm -hmm. friends, whereas the, the visual art seemed a lot more individually focused. Mm -hmm. It was almost like choosing between a team sport or an individual <laughs> sport in a way. You yeah, know? totally. Um, and I know I was always much more into that too, like, you know, playing basketball or rugby as opposed to athletic or track and field, you know. And so I can identify exactly when it was. It was in year 11. I just had to choose and I chose drama. And sometimes these days I wonder whether I made the right choice, but the world works in very mysterious ways because then through my other practices, I came back into visual art you know, yeah. 20 years later. Yeah, and I think what's really fascinating is because some of the words that you were using to describe why you kind of went towards more drama and performance are the exact words that people use to describe printmaking, right. which is that like collaborative yeah. community base. So I think that there's really that tie there, right? Where yeah. you, you found your way back in to visual arts, but through something that still holds those threads that yeah. originally attracted you to it. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's interesting. That hasn't been pointed out to me before and it's it's completely true because the way that I got back into it I guess this is a good time now to talk about it mm -hmm. is going back to my motherland homeland uh, of Borneo in East Malaysia that shares a border as well with Indonesia and I started working with some guys called Pangrok Sulap uh, in particular one of the ex-members a guy called Eric Lost Control who <laughs> that's not his government name but it's his sort of punk rock name and, um, and so this is a, a collective of artists who were all originally sort of from villages um, up, up in the mountains, uh, indigenous guys, 
who were all into punk rock music but began making woodcuts. I think mm. probably uh, over 10 years ago, something like that. Uh, they'd originally been taught by some guys from Taring Putty who are really famous Indonesian collective who are also, I think, musicians and punk rockers who have themes that relate to environmental destruction, um, corruption in power, and, uh, and it's very, very political work, but very community-based, you know. This collective, they always put their name Punk Rock Sulap, which means punk rock from the hut, mm. uh, or a sulap is kind of a farmer's hut where people can rest in the fields. Uh, and the whole point of it is that they don't have their individual names on it. It's about the community. It's about the collective. And so it was a very welcoming way to be yeah. reintroduced into the arts because um, I have a lot of friends who, who are artists in Sydney and uh, in Australia. And, uh, and, you know, it seems to me, at least I will still say from an outsider's perspective, because <laughs> I don't yet completely feel as if I'm in you know, the art world in that way. It does seem quite competitive, oftentimes, mm, yeah. and um, and individually based the practices. Even though I see a lot of collaborations and stuff as well, but just that kind of collective nature of it and how welcoming they were. There was no sort of defensiveness or anything. It was, oh brother, come along, like get get involved in this, and we are more than happy to teach you and teach you technique and sit down with you. Uh, you know, we would all sit on the ground and make woodcuts and mm -hmm. tell yarns and. Smoke cigarettes and stuff, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so out of curiosity, I'm kind of thinking about how you say they, they assign every woodcut with the same name, which is the name of the mm. collective. Mm -hmm. Do they work collaboratively on, on single pieces or do they each do their own pieces and it just, is it kind of like a combination of I that? think mostly they collaborate on single pieces, oh, massive scale works yeah. as well. I mean, I've seen some that, if I'm not mistaken, are about a story high and stuff. Oh my that, gosh. That, that, can hang as banners printed mm -hmm. on cloth. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen them all work on their own individual ones as well, but oftentimes they'll have like six to eight members working on mm. a huge one at a time. And, and they've done work where they'll go to a village, for instance, collect the stories of the village um, from the headhunting days or what's happening with logging, these sort of things. Mm. And then they'll get the village people to work on the woodcuts alongside them. So sometimes there'll be, you know, I don't know, like 15 people working yeah. on one at a time. And then they print these massive ones. And they've done those around the world, not just in Borneo, but India and Bangladesh as well, and mm. up in um, Taiwan. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that side of it attracted me too, because uh, it was storytelling. And they put quite a big emphasis on that. Like I remember they were doing one with a certain village where they said, well, a lot of people, maybe their literacy skills aren't that great and so you know they could tell the story of the history of the village in a medium that everybody could, could understand because everyone can understand the visual you know and that was pretty cool to me and I wanted to sort of be inspired and, and, and take from that um, yeah. worldview or that approach to art making yeah. because you know storytelling's what I do. Right so when you went about approaching your first woodcuts was that sort of like really a conscious choice were you thinking I'm a storyteller I'm going to create I'm going to tell stories with this, or was it kind of more intuitive? Like they just put something in your hand and you started to work on a block. It was completely intuitive. Mm. And that's what was so exciting and enthralling about it for me. Um, it also came at a time in my life when I think I was looking for something new, a new medium through which to express myself. Um, it's a very, it's quite a personal story in a way. I had 
been overseas and, ha and had been touring constantly for, for months, if not years, just on the road, uh, doing shows and writing. And I felt like the thing that I had once loved, writing, I now hated and mm. felt was stagnant. And I think there are major pitfalls in turning your passion into a profession. Yeah. You know, because you always think when you're young that that's the dream, to take this thing that you love and, and make money from it and, and earn your living from it. But actually it can sap that love. In that way, I often think of writing for me as a beautiful destroyer that diminishes me as much as it allows me to flourish or as much as it fulfills me. And in the end, the writer just gets smaller and smaller and dwindles and dwindles until there's just nothing, <laughs> nothing <laughs> left of him. Uh, you know, it's quite a dark way of looking at it, but sometimes that's how I've thought about it. Yeah. And two years ago, I had like a mini kind of mental breakdown really because of all of this stuff. And, and I felt like I'd come to an impasse in my life and I didn't know what to do because writing was my life mm -hmm. and it was me and performing mm -hmm. was me and I felt like I needed to leave it behind but if I left it behind what would be left of me you know yeah. and so I went on this crazy journey in Borneo on the Indonesian side where I took a ferry from a place called Samarinda on the east coast which is at the opening of this huge river called the Mahakam River that traditionally was the major trade route for people from the ocean to trade with the peoples of the interior, right in the heart of Borneo, right in the jungle. Orang Ulu, they're called, origin the original people. And so I took this three or four day journey, just sleeping on the deck of the ferry, going right into the heart of my homeland. And it felt like a very special, liberating moment for me and a journey I needed to take getting in touch with my history and my ancestry and going and seeing these beautiful long houses, which are exactly that. They're just long, long houses that people live in, <laughs> um, but also conduct ceremony in, and they have beautifully carved strata, almost like a Maori marae, um, with different kind of spiritual figures and, and animal forms carved into the, the strata of the, of the long house. And they even have skulls hanging up in the, in the ceiling from the headhunting days, you know, which weren't all that long ago. <laughs> and as a side note, you know, I talked to some people about it and, they, and I said, you know, do, do people still do it? And they go, no, 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 that's all in the past. But, but look, if someone's really bad, you know, <laughs> it's actually all right to still take their head. It was pretty full on. But anyway, I had this like kind of moment of, of almost spiritual catharsis taking this journey. And then directly after that, I crossed the border to the Malaysian side where my family's from. And I was at a place called Tamparuli, where they've got one of the only arts residences in the whole island, the Tamparuli Living Arts Centre. And um, a lot of the practice that they do there is woodcut workshops, but mm -hmm. also music. So the people there, Christina and Herman, who run the place, the caretakers, and Christina actually is like a really incredible printmaker herself, they invited me to come to kind of an open day and to perform, because that's what they knew me for, that's what mm -hmm. people know. And so I went and performed some poems and did a couple of songs. But then I could see out of the corner of my eye that they were running on the other side of the building a woodcut workshop, carving into kind of basically cheap, soft brown MDF and then printing it with their feet onto cloth and paper. And I saw it and I just thought, 
that looks way cooler than what I'm doing. I want to do that. And so I kind of very nervously and tentatively approached them, approached Eric, who's this, yeah, he's this crazy, <laughs> crazy punk rocker, sort of covered in scars and slashes and tattoos all over his body with this big grin. And I said, oh, you know, I don't think I'll be any good at this, but I would like to try it. Is, is there any chance I can try it? Mm. And then he said, yeah, of course, of course, sit down. And so he gave me a V-shaped gouge and a U-shaped one. And he just said, these have different effects. Uh, you know, yeah, one yeah. is a skinnier, <laughs> deeper groove. The other one is, you know, a more, a more shallow, short groove. And you can use them to different effects. Um, but just, just draw something and carve it, you know. Mm. And so I was looking around and we we're pretty much not exactly in the jungle, but, you know, it's a smaller town next to a river and you're surrounded by the forest and by thickets and everything. And we have beautiful endemic species of animals over there in Borneo. And I was trying to think, what is the most beautiful thing that I know of that I could carve? Because I just spend so much time with my writing, writing about the dark side of humanity and mm -hmm. brutality and violence and <laughs> toxic masculinity and, and drug culture and crime, you know, <laughs> like these things and racism, you know, these yeah, things yeah, are what yeah. I preoccupy myself with. I just wanted to make something beautiful. And the most beautiful thing that I knew was the Bornean clouded leopard. So I scratched out a little, you know, woodcut of a, a Bornean leopard. And then I put a cloud above it. And I said, when the loggers are away, the leopards will play. <laughs> just a little couplet. Yeah. I don't even know if that's a couplet. It's just one line, <laughs> but it rhymes. Yeah. And that was my very first one. And I don't know, when I look back at it now, it's kind of cool because it's very naive to use yeah, that word, yeah. I suppose. But it's not technically advanced <laughs> at all. But they all looked at it and they all said, oh, this is really cool. And, and yeah. Eric said, oh, I think, you, I think you can be good at this. You know, he said, I, I think you can be good at this. And he was like, here, have a little piece of MDF and I'll give you this V gouge and this U gouge. Take it away and practice on mm. your own. And I did. I took it away and I, w I was actually staying in a longhouse in another remote area and I was just looking out over the paddy fields and I decided to carve that and, and uh, described, you know, the conversations I'd had with the local indigenous people there about adat, which is about their sort of custom and traditions and, and land rights. So I made one about that. I brought it back and then, you know, it just sort of, it just kept going from there. I became preoccupied and obsessed with woodcuts. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I came back and I, to, to Canberra and I'd, I had this new lease on life, mm. you know. I'd found something completely unexpected. I never thought I would be making anything visual. Even just my first, first thing I said to him saying, oh, I don't think I'll be very good at this. I had no confidence in myself. I didn't know that this was something I would do. It was just intuitive, yeah. um, as you asked before. And, and I came back and I was just like, how am I going to get more into this because my visual, my, my, my artist friends here, people like um, Jason Fu or Abdul Abdullah, really great, mm -hmm. well-known artists here, they all thought it was cool. And I was like, really? I, I don't know, like, you actually think it's good? Like, I thought they were gassing <laughs> me up, you know? Like, <laughs> and, and they did, and so I was really excited by that. And so I was talking to some mates and, and they were saying, oh, well, that type of wood, because at first I tried to buy some wood and it was really hard. It was like rosewood and it was hard to carve because of the, mm -hmm. the grain and my tools weren't good enough. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, well, I can't really afford to get those 
super crazy Japanese tools. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, why, why can't I carve the same way as I was in Borneo? Because I didn't know what the wood was that they used. Yeah. And so I, I went to Bunnings and just got some MDF, you know, cheap MDF, and it carved like butter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I liked that, you, you know, it wasn't as hard as that rosewood or anything, but it's so physical and, and you have to put your body into it and your shoulder, whereas I found lino too, too kind of slippery or something. Mm. And then, yeah, I was chatting away to my friend Claire Jackson, uh, who, who was, I think, quite surprised that I was getting into this medium, but also was really encouraging and said, oh, well, you should come into, into Megalo printmaking studio sometime. And again, I don't know if she was just gassing me up, because <laughs> after that, you know, I messaged her a few times, she blanked me, <laughs> ghosted me, and, uh, <laughs> no, no, and then... And then eventually she, I think she saw that I was serious about it and I came in and, and she really helped me and encouraged me with working with a press for the first time, an electric press. And she introduced me to a, a great guy called Tim Palshek. Who? Uh, yeah. You might have heard of him. <laughs> but brilliant, uh, yeah, printmaker from the States who, who also was, was very encouraging. And, um, and just, I don't know, would, would give me different tips on different effects that I could use with, with my woodcuts. I don't know, di different color. Like there were certain things because I was learning by myself yeah. that I just didn't know about. Like, so I would get that orange skin kind of texture on my prints a lot that I was mm. printing with my feet because I was putting too much ink or not stiffening it enough right. and this, yeah, sort of, yeah, you know, this yeah. sort of stuff. And so these like really simple things that I'm sure you learn at art school, I had no idea about because yeah. I was just printing them with my feet in my kitchen after one workshop in Borneo. It's really exciting, like um, coming in and, and these guys being able to you know, not just inspire me and, and show me different artists, but also troubleshoot, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. things that I've just been, I've been flying in the dark, which yeah. was exciting, but also it can be frustrating because, you know, you're just like, oh, why isn't it coming out like, like totally. it was before, you know? Totally. And it is, it is really unusual for someone to come to printmaking outside of a university setting. Right. Usually, particularly like in that Western narrative of things, like mm -hmm. almost every person on the podcast, how'd you come to printmaking? Oh, I just wanted to do the print shop at school, you know? Okay. Yeah. So you were really coming at it from an unusual, an unusual way. Yeah. Um, but then again, that community was there to kind of just be like the teachers to just to fill in the little, the little blanks here and there. Yeah. That you hadn't, you know, as you said, just from one workshop. I think particularly with woodcut, it's it is deceptively complicated yeah. because you just think, oh, you're just making some marks in a piece of wood, mm -hmm. and then you put ink on it, and then you pull it off. But to get the real crispness, to get that exacting perfection mm -hmm. that you're probably after, yeah. you know, you, you need to know about stiffening the ink and yeah. what tool to use and that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're able to offer that. And you know, there's it was. Um, it was cool seeing sort of the the breadth of different ways you can make prints, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and some people even telling me that they would print with like, you know, a wheelbarrow or, a, yeah. you know, their car or something yeah. like that. Um, that was really cool. But, but I'm so glad that I started in that way, doing it with the feet, which apparently is quite a Southeast Asian mm -hmm. sort of thing. Like people in Cambodia apparently do it that way, Malaysia, Indonesia. And what's cool, I forgot to tell you about the Pungarok Sulap guys, is that they will play music like on the guitar yeah. while they step on their works because it oh gives it gosh. extra soul, you know? I love um, that. And so, you know, there was that whole history as well of, of carving wood. I mean, whether you are interior people in Borneo, 
jungle people, carving the strata of your longhouses um, and those sort of forms, or ocean people like my grandfather, the bows of the boats of the people from in between East and Borneo and the Philippines are carved beautifully with intricate patterns and designs and, um, mm. and flowers and different motifs. So in a weird way, not to get too spiritual about it, but you know, the carving of wood is in our history, in our culture, and it flows in my bloodline, mm. you know. And so in a, in a way, it's no coincidence maybe that this is the form that I was sort of drawn to and attracted totally. to. Like I've got uncles who just in, in your spare time in the village, like they'll be whittling wood, you know, <laughs> and they would give that to us as kids, like yeah. little, little forms that they'd made, little helicopters that they carved, you know, mats that they had woven, bags that they had woven out of rattan. Mm. It's a it's an ancient thing. Yeah. Um, it just you know often these guys in in Borneo say oh we've been doing it for just over ten years or fifteen years, but you know I think there's a reason why we're drawn to it like ducks to water. Right. So another thing that I was a bit interested in too was when you talk about your going to it and how you just kind of picked it up and really came to it from an intuitive place, and it sounds like words were even in your first woodcut. Yeah. Which I think is another thing that you know, you've got a really distinctive aesthetic. And of course, part of that is that words are in it. Yeah. And so it was even right there from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I think is really, really interesting. And I think a lot of times when words are added to images, they can seem really heavy handed or kind right. of clumsy or too didactic. But there's always a really beautiful balance in your work between the words and the images. Oh, thanks. And I'm wondering if that's something that if you were ever concerned about or if it just was natural to add the words or did you have to think about it like, oh, like I don't want to, I don't want to feel like I'm making a storybook out of my poetry or, yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. kind of concern if that was ever there for you. Yeah, a little bit. Um, you, you definitely, I mean, just even with my words in general, being heavy handed is always a bit of a risk. But now I sort of see myself as a bit of a sniper when it comes to the, <laughs> the lines, you know, I, when I was younger. I was very scattershot with, with the way that I approached words and would shoot them out very chaotically. But now I like to yeah pick them off. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, this has honed me even more because I don't put loads of words or text on my woodcuts. I'll use just a line or two. And in a way, I was informed also by, th by those guys, by Taring Padi and Pangrok Sulat, because their work sometimes reminded me of um, old uh, activist or propaganda posters that would only have a few words, but they really sort of right. stuck out. And even those themes I've, I've adopted a little bit too with, you know, sort of uh, about environmental destruction. A lot of my work concerns that. And also I was influenced by my friend Jason Fu, who uses a lot of words in his work. Um, and he was a printmaker too, so, mm -hmm. and is, I don't know, um, but does a lot of painting now. Really great Chinese, Vietnamese, Aussie uh, artist. And he uses a lot of humour. So I found that this was also a way of showing a more comical or humorous or lighthearted side, which I found pretty exciting because I think sometimes, <laughs> you know, people think I might be like really deadly serious. And so, yeah, I, I kind of found that I could, um, you know, use very limited words and very boiled down essential words, just in the same way as you would do with poetry, but even even more honed, mm. I would say. Uh, you have to choose them so carefully. And I always add the words at the end. So I sometimes mm. don't know what 
the poem or what the, the couplet is going to be. So I work, the, the, the visual does come first um, and then that informs what words I'm going to put in. And so I let it marinate and fallow in my head as I'm carving and it slowly takes a form after I see what I'm doing, what I'm making. So I'll often have the main subject of it visually, um, you know, drawn out, but then the effects and the stuff that goes around it, the images that go around it, take shape as I'm doing it. And so it's spontaneous in that way. And then the words come at the very end, which is, which is interesting, you know, because people often ask me that with the hip hop stuff too, like what comes first? Is it the words or the music? Mm. And to me, the music has to come first because it's, yeah. it, it, hip hop is it's music, it's a musical form. So the music um, influences and directs you where to go. Uh, and so I sort of try to take that same, same approach with the art. I'm trying to think if there's anything I've done where, where the words have come first, but I don't, I don't think there is. Well, and, and particularly with something like woodcut where you have, you've got this meditative time yeah. with the block. And so that whole time you're sort of discovering the image yeah. and really how it's taking form, all of that, the words can, I'm sure, sort of marinating yeah. and swirling around and you, you have this built-in time through the nature of the medium mm -hmm. to focus and think through, yeah. okay, what is what needs to be a part of this, yeah. this yeah. image? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that the physicalized side of it is something that I've found really liberating because, you know, it really is a, a highly thought-taxing intellectual pursuit as much as anything. But the time frame of it or something is is longer than my writing, uh, which is in really short, sharp, intense flurries. And the physical side of it means that I, yeah, I can go into more of a, a long-term trance-like state than I can with writing. Like, I would never be able to sit down and write for 12 hours straight. I can mm. do that with a woodcut, uh -huh. you know. And I think it's that combination of the, the kind of cerebral and then the, the physical side of it as well, where it's just like, okay, I've, I know what image I've got now. Now I've just got to put the hard yards and elbow grease into, you know, carving the block. Um, and that balance is really cool. And also I can listen to music while I do it. Right. Whereas with my writing, and this might sound weird because I'm a musician as well, but with my writing, it has to be dead silent. I if I ever listen to music, it would be instrumental, but that never would happen. Whereas I can listen to podcasts, I can listen to uh, music with lyrics and words when I'm carving a woodblock, which is, I don't know, I find it more enjoyable. And this also might sound weird, but it's, it feels almost as if it's the first time I've actually enjoyed the creative process in many, many years. I find that writing, to me, uh, as I mentioned before, the beautiful destroyer type thing, but it's, it's brutal and painful and suicide <laughs> inducing as opposed to something I enjoy. Yeah. Um, which uh, is why in some ways I'm trying to keep the visual stuff a bit more sacred and still keep that childlike playfulness and joy that I had when I made that first one in Borneo. Mm. Um, and so... I don't know, it's something that I'm trying to navigate at the moment, even though people seem to be responding really well to my work. And, 
you know, the exhibitions that I've had have sold out and everything. It's been amazing sort mm. of experience. But I know the pitfalls associated with that as well. With if I suddenly was like, okay, this is going to be my main thing. You then start to put pressure on yourself. There's external pressure. You torture yourself. Mm. But maybe that's just part of making art or making good art. Maybe that's always <laughs> going to be a part of it. Yeah. You know, because yeah. I definitely, in making some of the shows, I've taken myself into those spaces where I'm like, oh my God, you know, and I'm really stressing out about how to finish this work or, 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 or sort of stretch out my brain elasticity in a way that I'm not used to or makes me feel uncomfortable or uneasy. Maybe that discomfort is something you need to, to make good work. I don't know. It's something I'm navigating anyway. I had a, a good friend who was a, a filmmaker and he said something about the creative process that always stuck with me, which is that something's not good until you hate it. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which, could be. And I think it's not 100% true, because mm -hmm. like, I do know every once in a while that kind of magic creation comes along, mm. that the, it was a pain-free birth. Yeah, right. But it's the exception rather than the rule. I, I'd say so as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've found that with, with poems and, and with songs and things like that. Yeah, every now and then. The painless, but I mean, that's an amazing feeling, but mm -hmm. a very, very rare one. The weird thing being, though, that those are usually the best pieces of work that you create. Know. <laughs> you know, you can torture yourself over years and years and with a piece of work, and sometimes it just doesn't quite work. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's like that, that, that lightning in the bottle kind of a thing that just... Yeah. And I think so much of the creative process is this maybe somewhat fruitless struggle of trying to figure out how did I get there? You know, what, yeah. what was the magic combination? Was I just hung over enough and this one song yeah, was playing yeah, yeah. and I had, I don't know, just talked to my mom on the phone and like that was the mm -hmm. magic combination. But it's, it's just, you have to just wait. It's like, it's like being a, a sailor in a tiny boat on the sea and you're mm -hmm. rowing and rowing and rowing and every once in a while the wind comes along that actually pushes yeah. you exactly yeah. where you need to go. But you do have to keep rowing. You, you know, do, I yeah. Um, because I, I think it's a bit of a rogue's excuse when writers or artists just say, oh no, I just sit there and I wait for inspiration to strike. Yeah. I think inspiration's sort of more, well, I was gonna say it's more likely to strike if, if you, you know, keep working and give it more of an opportunity to, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but I do think if you are in your soul an artist, you have to, you just have to keep making work. And if that work is fruitful or if, the work works, mm -hmm. then it does. Um, if it doesn't, then that's okay as well. You mm -hmm. sort of let it fall by the wayside and you just keep going and you keep making. Yeah, I think it was a Werner Herzog that once said, if you sit around and wait for inspiration, you'll die before you make anything. Yeah. Like you just, yeah. you can't, you, you can't. You just have to push through yeah. that white knuckling teeth pulling yeah. days because every once in a while you get the wind in your sails. And it's in, an incredibly fraught kind of life or fraught process, but that's that's okay. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes the problem is we get so full of fear at mm -hmm. making mistakes or looking like an idiot um, or looking, yeah, looking foolish. But our successes, if we ever have any, are only the culmination of all of our mistakes. And you will never get anywhere if you haven't made a million mistakes 
and uh, and so yeah, I guess that's what I'm in in the process <laughs> of doing with the woodcuts. But yeah. I'm I'm really enjoying it, yeah. and and I think maybe that's that's where the joy lies for me as well. Is that there's there isn't really any pressure because people know me for this other thing. They don't expect me to be any good at this. <laughs> and it's sort of like you know, it's a it's like. Um, uh, you, you know, it's a nice surprise when people are like, oh, this is actually, this is actually not too bad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have noticed it's interesting when you were talking about kind of continuing to try to keep these woodcuts in this place of joy. Mm. Because I have noticed that your words, the, when, they, when they're not appearing in a woodcut, are definitely darker. Mm -hmm. And so it, it makes sense now why that is. Because, you know, they're not saccharine in any way, shape, or form, but there's, there's a bit more of a levity. There's a bit more of yeah. a, um, a hopefulness yeah. um, with the criticalness. And it must just come because it's this sort of exists now in this special place in your creative process yeah. that you can do that. Yeah, yeah. Which is really great. I think that's, yeah, I think that's true. And I don't know, it's kind of funny because sometimes I see visual artists who are struggling so hard to come up with this really critical postmodern intellectual <laughs> um, description of what they're, you know, or reasoning mm -hmm. for creating this work, when sometimes you think, is that really what you were thinking, or did you just think that was a cool arresting image? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I, I guess I'm just at a point where I don't care. Like if someone thinks I'm real basic for what I've made, <laughs> that's okay. Like, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I really enjoy that that sort of. The, the levity of it and and I think Jason Fu you know mm. was a huge influence on me yeah. in that way I'd love to get him on the on oh the yeah you, you well. really should yeah um, he's on my list for just sure. really and, and Abdul as well Abdul Abdullah yeah, I mean yeah. he's got a lot of humor in his work and sort of realizing that you know I think it's a really amazing feeling as an artist uh, I can relate to it more as a writer than anything but that moment when you realize I didn't know you could do that you know, I didn't yeah, realize yeah. that it was okay to do that thing. And, and those moments of epiphany are huge. And, and I think realizing, oh yeah, I, when I make my woodcuts, I don't have to make them super serious and, and navel gazing or um, hyper critical political pieces, um, even though, because I am who I am, yeah. a lot of my work has ended up yeah. <laughs> having that political sort of resonance. Um, but realizing you could, you know, they could be funny and mm -hmm. they could joke around and be tongue-in-cheek. That was that was a cool moment of realization for yeah. me. Yeah, I think this would be a great sort of segue a bit into talking about maybe your most recent body of work. I did an exhibition and a bunch of work based on this idea of a mythical utopian place that I made up in my head called Leopard Beach, um, which is a place where I can sometimes escape to in my own mind and where I have escaped when I was feeling depressed, anxious, and even not to put too fine a point on it, suicidal. Um, and so, you know, I think all utopias and all escapism is based uh, usually around the idea that this world isn't working properly or functioning well and things are falling apart. And so you can kind of project a vision of a world uh, or the world as it might one day be or could be if we as humans acted in a different way and treated our environment better, treated each other better, distributed wealth 
better, you know. Mm. And so I kind of came up with this idea of, of Leopard Beach that was 100% body positive, plastic free, <laughs> you know, and we'd use bright colours to replicate, the, you know, almost old uh, vintage, you know, Hawaiian kind of postcards or something like that. Yeah. Um, beachside towns. Uh, and of course, like the whole thing seems very joyous, but what it's really saying is that our world is kind of fucked up, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. and, and so Leopard Beach, um, it's about the environment, but a lot of it is about mental health and a response um, to depression and to moments of when you feel in such a dark place that you feel as if you're going mad. And so, uh, yeah, like there's, there, there is that, dark side to that that brightness and that exuberance of leopard beach mm. and there was one big big piece the final piece uh, and and you saw me printing <laughs> yes. it called all was a blaze that is probably the darkest and most surreal thing i created for the welcome to leopard beach exhibition that i think contextualizes all of the the joyousness and exuberance which is influenced by the bushfires that devastated our country by the parade of vulgarity and militant idiocy that we see in Australian politics and often in responses by our even our Prime Minister to the bushfire or even lack of response yeah. <laughs> to the bushfires and our climate change policy or lack thereof you know all these types of things and um, that show is a bit closer to my writing that shows a world that has lost equilibrium, a world of darkness, madness and horror that we are slowly slipping into, or not so slowly. And so it sort of sometimes asks the question, is escapism irresponsible because we're actually ignoring real action? Or is it through projecting the world as it might be, the impetus for changing the way we think and the way we act? And so that, those were some of the ideas I was thinking of behind the exhibition. No, it's a, it's a really, really good question that I think is so pertinent to the world that we're living in right now, today, March 9th, 2020. Yep. This, uh, this how do we face the horrors of the world without going mad? Yeah. And how much do we owe the world to, to lean in and look unflinchingly at what's actually happening? Mm -hmm but also take care of ourselves because exactly if if all the people who care so deeply about it burn out mm -hmm. then then all you're going to have left is scott morrison's yeah you know? yeah exactly. yeah you know these are fundamental questions we have to figure out and we have to figure out the balance um, as individuals but individuals who live inextricably in communities um, mm. And again, that brings up, you know, that idea of, of community. And I think that, you know, in this, this world that favours kind of a cult of individualism, maybe the, one of the only ways we can move forward is, is in our small pockets of community and uplifting at that local level. Uh, of course, advocating for global change, mm -hmm. but we ordinary people <laughs> and artists you know, maybe it's that focus on the community and what we can do together that will uplift us and help us survive. Just hearing you mention that, I'm just thinking about the experience of what it's like to 
live day to day and you're caught up in your own head and you're worried about going to the grocery store and whether or not you're going to see two people trying to stab each other over some toilet paper right. and all this kind of thing. And just the release it is just to come into a, a print studio mm. and see someone else there who knows you and yeah. who greets you warmly. Yeah. And you can just, you don't even have to talk about the shit that's going on. Yeah. It's just having someone there who affirms you it, yeah. it, like it, it really for me it always it pulls me out of my own head mm-hmm. I I was actually talking to Tim about it the other day and I said I just want to have a conversation with someone that's not about my problems right like, you know yeah. um, and you know and I not that I even have that much to complain about but it's just kind of this idea of, of just just getting out of your own head by being reminded of someone else's reality. Mm. Like, what are you working on? Like, what yeah. are you going on? How are your kids? You know, whatever it is, it it seems really small, but when you go a couple days without it, you really understand that catharsis yeah, yeah. when it happens. Yeah, definitely. I've found it really exciting and unexpected how willing people have been to help me and how stoked they are that I'm doing printmaking. Yeah. Because, look, I'm not... as as has become obvious, I'm, yeah, I'm not trained and I'm not from an institution. And in a weird way, even though I've always been a part of the arts in general, I don't know this world. So I, for instance, you know, don't know about how, or didn't know about how some forms of art are more lucrative than others. And <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. that printmaking may, maybe isn't as, you know, bigger form or, mm-hmm. or, or sort of, um, yeah, lucrative, yeah. you know, as painting and all that sort of stuff. And, and so that community aspect of it, uh, I, I didn't realise how stoked people would be that I chose this medium, you know, as opposed yeah. to me, I don't know, yeah, going into, trying to go into painting or something. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and that's been, been really cool. And, and, and people have popped up out of the woodwork that I didn't know, you know, mm. that were, were sort of into this or had trained in printmaking. And, uh, and that's, that's really exciting. And I'm glad that people like that and like Tim exist because I am <laughs> bloody useless with science and dropped out of all maths and science in year 10. And so all these different chemicals and things that, you know, help create the art. I'm, I'm glad that there's, there's places like Megalo that I can come instead of trying to, you know, I'll probably burn my hands off or something if I was yeah. trying to do it myself. Yeah, Tim is always, is always <laughs> keen to talk at the chemistry of printmaking. Um, whether or not anyone else understands it, you know. It's hilarious, hey, when I talk, because to people who are smart enough to understand that all minds work in that way, they're just like, well, you know, it's so obvious, it's just oil and water, you know, they don't mix. And I'm like, all right, so, okay, I can understand that. I can understand that much. But as soon as you go into some of these, like, lithographs, yeah. it's just, a, it's a completely foreign yeah. language. I mean, I'm pretty it's so sure it's witchcraft. Cool, yeah, yeah. I, I think so, yeah. too. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, I did make some actually with Tim and I thought they, they were really cool. But, you know, after about 30 seconds of him describing yeah. what was going on, I was like, okay, I can see that something is going on and you're helping me with that. Yeah. But I would never be able to explain <laughs> this to someone else. Well, in, in the time that we have left, mm-hmm. if you were comfortable with it, would you favor us with a little bit of spoken word for the podcast if you have something in mind? Sure. All right, so I'm going to do this poem that's, unpublished I was gonna um, make an artwork actually I started making a woodcut on it for the last exhibition but I ran out of time so you know the listeners can look forward to that (laughs) Um, but I guess one of the other themes you know I've talked about how 
environmental destruction and mental health um, is uh, probably the two main themes of, of what I've been making. But I think um, lost love um, and longing are two things I also explore a lot in the work. Uh, and so this is a poem kind of based on that longing that doesn't have a name yet. So it goes like this. The moon is ripe. The sky is credit card gold. My love as deep as your militant indifference, deep as an ocean between us. I'm still trying to find the right words to reach you, sifting through a thousand keys on the palace floor. We sing the same old song apportioning blame, my black-eyed angel, precious hurricane. We can recite brand names like a psalm, songs of praise for dollars that evaporate in your palm. But have we ever seen God's face, ever bathed in her profane grace? Cause the signal keeps fucking up, potholes where we once played double dutch. So you told me, write a new story, you who was never mine. So I'll try to speak the unspeakable and turn water into wine. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I got, I got goosebumps. That was yeah, really beautiful. A, Thank just you. Just a short one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's exciting to, to combine the words and the, mm -hmm. and the images. Like I've found that that was my entry point. You know, mm -hmm. I, it was a little bit too scary to just go straight into being like, <laughs> okay, here it is. I'm Omar Musa, the artist now. <laughs> um, you know, it seemed to make sense to kind of incorporate that into the whole process. Um, just as with my novel writing, I used poetry as the access point to prose. I kind of did that with this mm -hmm. as well. And, um, and, you know, just as like the whole world, there are melting borders sort of between nations um, and very, yeah, sort of supple, supple borders between communities as we fracture and recreate and create new communities online and based on political ideologies or, or interests as opposed to nationality and race and gender, these sort of things. I think it's a really cool thing to do that with the arts as well, um, to break down these perceived kind of borders and barriers mm -hmm. between art forms. And uh, I don't know if that's a real basic thing to say, because no. maybe these are conversations that I have <laughs> in the visual arts all the time. But, yeah. but for me, yeah, in, from a personal point of view and perspective, that's what I've enjoyed most about this process. And, and I'm excited to see where it goes in the yeah. future. Well, we're, we're so... Happy! I speak for for the printmaking community. We're we're so happy that you've joined us, Omar, and you're making such beautiful work, um, and really being an amazing voice uh, within our community. So thank you so much for sitting down with me. This was like such a fun chat. No problem. Yeah. It's yeah. Great. This was really really good. <laughs> and before we totally sign off, where can people find you? See your work. See your woodcuts. Find more of your writing. You can find me. On Facebook, Omar Musa QBN. So that's O M A R M U S A Q B N. Uh, my Instagram is actually probably the most active social media I've got, which is um, Omar Bin Musa, O M A R B I N M U S A. And yeah, I'm always putting up my new work on there. Beautiful. And uh, I've got a I've got a big cartel where people can buy stuff, but you know, it's not about that for me at the moment. Um, yeah. So yeah, just follow me on Instagram. It's probably the Definitely. best way. Definitely, I will put links to all of that. So. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Well, that's our show for this week. 
Join me again next week. My guest will be Raj Benang. Raj makes the most unbelievably detailed large-scale woodcuts about the war on drugs. We'll talk the politics of narcotics, the joy and the pain of travel, his experience growing up on the East Coast as the child of Thai immigrants, and why he'll take on, at times, a year-long printmaking project. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.